Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, Searching for a Missing Okie. Today's episode of No Home for Heroes is taken from case number 461 in the files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. In the last 10 years, only 48 unknowns from the Battle of Tarawa have been identified from the Punchbowl Cemetery in Honolulu, Hawaii. 55 sets of remains recovered from the Punchbowl of Tarawa unknowns are stored in cardboard boxes on shelves at the DPAA, that's the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency Laboratory awaiting identification. Today's episode is a story of what may just be one of those unresolved cases. Hello everybody, I'm your host Rick Stone bringing you another great and true story from our vault of history's military mysteries. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. We invite you to listen to all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast or streaming platform you prefer. We dedicate this episode today to our loyal listeners in Tipton, Oklahoma. Population 847. Oh, wait a minute. 848. A baby was just born. Here's the story of a small town's farmer's son who left Oklahoma seeking a new life and seeking adventure with the Marines. Sadly, he found the adventure but lost his life defending his country. Those of you who have been following our podcast for the last three years know that we often feature stories about missing Marines and airmen and even a merchant Marine from the Battle of Tarawa. We thought today might be a good time to update you all on the status of these MIA investigations in addition to presenting an episode about one of those Marines who are still unaccounted for. When the Department of Defense first assigned me all of the MIA Tarawa cases, now, that was about mid-2011. There were a total of 521 files, 521 individual files that were dropped on my desk. In a matter of days, I was able to find or clear seven cases of MIAs who should never have been on the list in the first place. Of these seven, my favorite was Private First Class David Julian Parm. I determined that he survived the war. And although the Marine Corps noted that he had been wounded at Tarawa in 1943, he was honorably discharged in 1945. In 1977, PFC Parm applied for a disability with the Veterans Administration, citing a head wound he had received in Tarawa, only to be told that they couldn't help him because he was officially missing in action. Well, I'm not sure how Private First Class Parm resolved that, but he passed away in Michigan on 18 September 1977. As we air our podcast today, the number of Tarawa MIAs has been whittled down to 371. 
thanks primarily to DNA comparisons completed by the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory, which has taken over the heavy lifting of identifications from what I think is the inept DPAA laboratory. But here's the part that still, after all these years, seems surreal. After five years, the Department of Defense finally acted upon my original 2011 recommendations and began exhumation of the unknowns from the Punch Bowl Cemetery in Honolulu on 2 October 2016. This interment of the Tarawa unknowns was completed on 27 March 2017. And to date, only 48 unknowns have been identified from the Punch Bowl and 55 sets of remains recovered from the punch bowl are stored in cardboard boxes on shelves at the DPAA laboratory in Honolulu awaiting identification. So it's taken almost five years to identify 48 sets of remains that we had in our military cemetery since the end of World War II. 48 down and 55 to go. And really, these are the simplest of all MIA cases. We don't have to find the remains in the jungle or dig through sand dunes on some faraway battlefield. They were a mile from Waikiki Beach in Honolulu. If the government can't ID the remaining 55 unknowns sitting in cardboard boxes on the shelf at their own DPAA laboratory, how can we expect the others from the 371 still missing to be found on the island and identified? Good question. All I know is the only thing we here at the Foundation can do is to keep chipping away at the cases that we still have on our desk. Today's episode is the true tale of just one of those remaining MIAs. Sergeant John Terry Brackeen from Oklahoma. JT, as he liked to be known, stated that he was born in Tipton, Oklahoma. He was known as Pat to his family and friends, but in most of his official records, he is listed as J.T. Brackeen, using his initials only. At the time of the 1930 census, J.T.'s parents, Nathaniel T. and Mary Ophelia Brackeen, listed six sons and a daughter living in a household in Hedrick, Oklahoma. J.T.'s father was a cotton farmer in Jackson County, Oklahoma. And J.T. only really completed the sixth grade in school, and his signature on his official military records indicates that his writing skills were pretty weak. J.T.'s father died on 23 December 1939, two days before Christmas, at the age of 62. In 1940, J.T. was living with his mother and two brothers in Hedrick, Oklahoma. He registered for the draft in Altus, Oklahoma on 16 October 1940 and stated he was employed as a maintenance worker on a county road crew. JT was accepted in the Marine Corps Reserves in Bakersfield, California and formally enlisted in Los Angeles on 19 December 1941. That was 12 days after the attack on Pearl Harbor when he was given the rank of private. The period of his enlistment was originally for four years, but later it was changed in his records for the, quote, duration of the national emergency, end quote. Private Brackeen listed his mother, Mrs. Ophelia Brackeen, who had moved to Bakersfield as his next kin, and he completed all the necessary paperwork to receive U.S. government life insurance. 
At the time of his enlistment, Private Brackeen was unmarried, and his official United States Marine Corps photograph does not contain a chart to confirm his listed height of 70.8 inches, but this measurement's very close to what he told the draft board in 1940 when he said he was 71 inches tall. Private Brackeen weighed 164 pounds, brown hair, blue eyes, and a light complexion, and his military photograph clearly shows a deep dimple in his chin. Private Brackeen's last dental examination was on 22 December 1941, shortly after his enlistment. His dental profile included 10 cavities, no extractions, poor wisdom teeth noted, and there's no indication in any of his records that he ever received fillings for any of those multiple cavities. Private Brackeen's medical records do indicate that he had no previous bone fractures, breaks, birthmarks, major scars, or tattoos. He had multiple very small scars, less than one inch, on various places on his body. His cap size was unknown, but he had 20-20 eyesight in both eyes. Private Brackeen began his Marine Corps basic training as a member of the 1st Recruit Battalion in San Diego, California. He qualified on the Marine Corps rifle range with a standard Marine Corps-issued weapon, a Springfield Bolt Action Model 1903 .30-06 caliber rifle. And while he was in recruit school, he earned a Qualified Swimmer certification. After graduation from basic training on 28 January 1942, Private Brackeen was assigned to G Company, that's George Company or Golf Company, 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, stationed at Camp Elliott, San Diego, California. And on 24 February 1942, Private Brackeen was promoted to Private First Class. Later in 1942, PFC Brackeen and his company boarded a transport ship in San Diego Harbor for shipment to the Solomon Islands, where they participated in the landings on Tulagi on 8 August 1942 and later Guadalcanal Island on 10 August 1942. Private Brackeen and his company fought throughout the Guadalcanal campaign and were withdrawn from Guadalcanal on 31 January 1943 and transported to Wellington, New Zealand on board the USS President Hayes. PFC Brackeen's unit was assigned to Camp McKay's Crossing, New Zealand, for a period of rest, refit, and training in preparation for the invasion of Tarawa. Private Brackeen was promoted to Corporal, two stripes, on 1 April 1943, and he was sick in the U.S. Navy Hospital in New Zealand from 11 to 19 April 1943 with an unrecorded illness or injury, which could have been malaria, which was a contagion contracted during, by many of the Marines during the Guadalcanal campaign. On 9 June 1943, Corporal Brackeen and his company embarked aboard the USS Hunter Liggett in Wellington Harbor, New Zealand for amphibious landing training. On 30 June 1943, Corporal Brackeen received his semi-annual professional and conduct record, which was scored by his commanding officer on a 0 to 5 scale for the five traits of Military efficiency, 4.4. Neatness and military bearing, 4.5. Intelligence, 4.6. Obedience, 5.0. And sobriety, 5.0. Corporal Brackeen was promoted to sergeant on 25 September 1943. Sergeant Brackeen and his company 
embarked aboard the USS Zealand in Wellington Harbor on 17 October 1943 for additional amphibious landing training along the New Zealand coast. And after a brief return to New Zealand, the Zealand departed on 1 November 1943 for even more amphibious landing training in New Caledonia before setting sail for Tarawa. On the first day of the battle, Sergeant Brackeen's company was assigned to land in the center of Red Beach 2 at about oh, 8.30 hours. That's 8.30 in the morning. Most of the company landed only a few minutes behind their designated time to hit the beach by using LVT, landing vehicle track, amphibious tractors which were able to crawl over the reef. G Company, less one platoon, landed about oh, three minutes after their planned time at the center of Red Beach 2, and they secured a shallow foothold between E and F companies. George Company was originally scheduled to land at H plus six minutes, but due to the loss of control of the boats, landed three minutes earlier. This was done under heavy enemy fire, and casualties were heavy. The first platoon of G Company landed on the extreme right of Red Beach 1 about ten minutes later. They were separated from the other companies by a great distance. It was at this point that Sergeant Brackeen vanished. Or did he? Most of Sergeant Brackeen's company landed as directed on Red Beach 2 and took up defensive positions between E and F Company that were positioned behind the seawall at that location. All the Marines who were able to land fought desperately to hold on to the small beachhead in the face of withering Japanese defensive fire. Casualties were heavy, and soon G Company was reduced significantly as a cohesive fighting unit. Sergeant Brackeen is listed on his United States Marine Corps casualty card as killed in action on 20 November 1943. This document does not list a cause of death or a burial location. He is listed in his chaplain's logbook, but again, with the cause of death and burial details unknown. The Graves Registration Unit Report of January 1944, about two months after the battle, and the Island Commander in his report of June 1944, about seven months after the battle, both list Sergeant Brackeen's burial location as, quote, unknown, end quote, rather than listing him as missing as was done with many other Tarawa casualties. His individual deceased personnel file states, Sergeant J.T. Brackeen was officially reported killed in action on Tarawa Atoll, Gilbert Islands, on 20 November 1943. Entry in his service record book states, Burial Details Unknown. Recently, Researchers and investigators here at the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation have reassessed the candidates from the Punchbowl Tarawa unknowns to be the remains of Sergeant J.T. Brackeen. Sergeant Brackeen is dentally excluded to be any unknown that has dentition available for comparison with Sergeant Brackeen's distinctive dental profile. Remember all those fillings that J.T. had with no fillings? All those cavities he had with no filling. Doesn't mean that he didn't get fillings later that weren't recorded. We checked that too. But he's not a match to any of the unknowns who have dentition. That leaves us with just 17 punch bowl unknowns 
who lack complete dentition. Of these, there is one probable match and four possible match candidates to Sergeant J.T. Brankeen. Is Pat, as his family knew him, one of these five? Or is he still buried in the sands of Tarawa in an undiscovered grave? Well, we don't know, because we continue to wait for someone in the government to compare his family's DNA to the probable and possible matches the Foundation researchers have identified. Let's all hope that Pat makes his way back to Oklahoma soon. Tipton needs its hometown hero to finally come home. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production. And again, we invite you to check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. No Home for Heroes is featured on just about any podcast site all across the world. We greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. We again thank you for your support of our mission to provide information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. Every assistance counts, and you do make a difference. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that, having heroes, forgets them.